Let us pray before we begin. Thank you, Father, that you have been merciful to us in Christ. Thank you that you don't require us to offer anything because we have nothing to give but our sin. Thank you, Christ, that you have brought us near to the Father, that you have shown us mercy, that you have given us grace which we don't deserve. Thank you for your word that we have it today and that it is living and active and that it accomplishes your will even today. And I pray that the Spirit would take these words and carry them to the hearts of every person here. That we would once again be amazed with your goodness toward us and once again be reminded that we are great sinners and in Christ we have a great Savior. I pray that even today you would bring salvation to some as you have many years ago to this great city, Nineveh. I pray that those who have not yet turned, those who have not yet repented, that they would come today to you. And I know that only happens because you work and because you bring that about. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory. For us who are here and who know the gospel, may we once again be reminded and may we once again have that fire rekindled in us to go with this news to others whom you desire to save. Bless this time, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We're in chapter 3, so we're halfway done with the book. And it's been quite a ride so far, or maybe quite a sail. In chapter 1, we saw Jonah attempt to flee from the Lord. And because of his disobedience, you know that he put his own life and the life of those who were on the sea that day in peril. You recall that his disobedience was costly. On the ship that he was on, the sailors began to throw cargo overboard just so they can ride out the storm somehow. Perhaps it wasn't the only ship that had to do that. And by the time we're done with chapter 1, you remember that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish. Now, despite his disobedience, you remember that God saved the sailors. I mean, these sailors who never worshipped Yahweh before, perhaps never heard of him before, here they are, by the end of chapter 1, they are worshipping Yahweh. They understood that their gods could not deliver them. And so they cry out to the God of Jonah, and he delivers them. And I think we can assume that from that point on, they didn't go back to worshiping their idols. They worship the Lord. Now in chapter 2, we saw Jonah's prayer from the stomach of the fish. He told us that when his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord and he cried out to him. See, God was teaching Jonah a lesson. He was teaching him a lesson that although he was unwilling to show mercy to others, God, because he is compassionate and gracious, would extend mercy to him, and he did. Though Jonah did not come for full circle, as we saw last time, God still delivered him. He did not experience complete transformation, and he didn't change his attitude towards Ninevites, yet God still delivered him, and the fish vomited him up on a dry land. Now, before we get to our chapter, I want us to fast forward about 100 years from the time that God commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh. There's another prophet by the name of Nahum, and the word of the Lord came to him as well regarding the Ninevites. If you just fast forward two books, you will be in the book of Nahum. And this time, the message was not one of grace. It was not a message and a commission to go and preach to them, but this was a message of judgment. 
This was the message that Jonah wanted to preach to Ninevites. But a hundred years later, God speaks this word, this word through Nahum. Look at chapter 1, first six verses. He says, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. That's what Jonah wanted to preach. And that's the message that came to Nahum a hundred years later. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence the world, and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his, uh, the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Sounds like God is angry. And sounds like God is about to judge, and he is about to judge Ninevites. Why is God judging them? Well, if you look at verse 9, and 11, we see here that these were people who hated the Lord and they plotted against Him. Verse 9 says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Verse 11 says, From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Apparently, the revival of which we're going to read today in Jonah chapter 3 only lasted for so long, perhaps a generation and another generation arose that went back to their old ways. They hated the Lord and plotted against Him. Not only that, they were idolatrous and contemptible. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idols and images from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. They were violent and bloody. They were full of lies. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. They were notorious for their evil and cruelty. Verse 19 says of chapter 3, There is no relief from your breakdown. Your, wounds, your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? See, everyone was aware of their wickedness, and many nations around them have experienced their cruelty. And so he says, when the judgment comes, everybody's going to stand and they're going to clap because your judgment is deserved. And by the time you get to the, the end of 7th century, Babylon is relegated by, Babylonians relegated the Assyrians to the ash heap of history. All that the Lord has spoke through Nahum was fulfilled. You see, this is the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, for example, God speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and says to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, when they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, 
and you'll be buried at a good, good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. And then he gives the reason why. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So for 400 years, God is tolerating all these nations that are living in a promised land. He's patient with them. He endures them. And it is as if he's letting the cup be filled up with their wickedness. He says to Abraham, their, their iniquity is not yet complete. And so he allows them and he gives mercy to them for another 400 years. He doesn't wipe them out. And 400 years later, he brings Israelites out of Egypt. And he says, I want you to go into a promised land. And I want you to hit control, I'll delete on everything that breeds in that land. Everything that breeds must be wiped out. You see, when you read of the, of the Israelites going into the promised land and conquering that land, listen, this is not a story of unprovoked genocide. This is a story of God's just judgment on the wicked nations. God has been tolerating them and showing mercy to them, and giving them time to repent for 400 years, and they continue to sin and sin and sin against the Lord. And the time came when God says, it is over. They're going to go in. And Israelites, in some sense, were no better than those people there. And God says, there are my tool right now, and I'm going to use them to punish you. That's what happened in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Number. The same thing happened in the book of Nahum. God showed mercy again and again. He showed mercy here to Ninevites. And then time comes and God says, you're done. Here's the point that I want to make with all this. No one gets away with anything. This is one thing that you can bank on. That no one is getting away with anything. If judgment does not come in this life, it will come in the next, and it will definitely come. And the judgment that people experience even today, it is but a glimpse of that judgment that is awaiting them on the day when they stand before God. And you see, in the meantime, God sends prophets like Jonah, who warn people of the impending judgment and tell them, repent repent the mercy is available but it will not always be available because the time of judgment is coming now this brings us to Jonah chapter 3 as I mentioned last time you come to Jonah chapter 3 and in verse 1 Jonah is back to square one you will see that there is direct parallel between few verses of chapter 3 and the first verses of chapter 1 God did not change his mind and he did not change his assignment for Jonah. Again, he could have set him aside, or he could have let him drown in the sea, but he does not. And I've made this point many times already, but I think we should never get tired of speaking about this, about the mercy and kindness of God. You see, compassion and mercy of God, in a sense, you can say necessitates sin. You see, it is because of Jonah's sin that he experienced the mercy and compassion of God. You don't need mercy and compassion when you're perfect. You need mercy and compassion when you've sinned. You need mercy and compassion when you broke the law. A criminal who pleads for mercy, he acknowledges his crime. A sinner cries out to mercy only when he recognizes that he has sinned. 
You see, if we were not sinners, we would not need mercy. But this is the story of God's mercy. This is a story from beginning of the Bible to its end. That yes, we are great sinners, and yes, we have a great Savior. And you see, the greatness and the gravity of our sin only magnifies the greatness and the gravity of God's love and His compassion. Now, I am not saying go out there and sin as much as you can so that you can experience as much mercy as you can. That is not what I'm saying. And if we preach that way, some people might accuse us of that. And if they do, we're in good company. Because that's what Bible talks about. That's what they accused Paul of. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall, I, shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slenderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. You see, God is glorified through our sin. It is also true that God holds us accountable for our sin. However, it is not true that we should continue to sin so that we may give God an opportunity to exalt himself. You see, we have to hold these two things in tension at all times. I must not sin. That is a command from Scripture. And on the other hand, when I do sin, this gives God an opportunity to magnify himself. And these two things you got to hold in, hand, in tension. She was Jonah disobedient to God? Absolutely. Was God merciful to Jonah when he disobeyed him? Absolutely. Should God, should Jonah have disobeyed God so that God could demonstrate his mercy and compassion? Absolutely not. But when Jonah did, that's when God puts his character on display. He is compassionate and gracious to his children. And it is his compassion and it is his kindness that draws us. To, that draws sinners back to him. You see, it's, on the one hand, the Bible does talk about wrath. And we do preach that God is angry and God judges, and that is absolutely true. But so many times, like even in this book, you don't see God lash out on Jonah and rebuke him harshly, even though he does at times. But he says, listen, I am compassionate to you. I am gracious to you. And it is his kindness that draws you in. Come to me because I am gracious and I am compassionate. And it is his goodness that calls you and me to him. As we study chapter 3, here's the lesson that I want you to walk away with. It is this. God has mercy on those who respond with mourning to his message. God has mercy on those who respond with mourning to his message. Jonah chapter 3 is pretty short, but it is perhaps the greatest revival that you will read of in the entire Bible. Do you know of any mass conversion like this? You have one reluctant preacher preaching one message that he didn't necessarily want to preach, and an entire city is repenting. Everyone there, including man and beast, are all covered with sackcloth, and the king is sitting in the ashes. It is an amazing conversion. And wouldn't it be amazing to see that mass conversion today if the Lord would bring that about when we preach his message? As we look at the details of this chapter, 
I want to see three, show you three things here. First, we will focus our attention on Jonah and his message in the first four verses. Second, we will observe Ninevites and their mourning. And finally, we'll once again be amazed by God and his mercy. Jonah and his message, Ninevites and their mourning, and God and his mercy. And by the time we're done, you will see that the point of this chapter is that God has mercy on those who respond with mourning to his message. Read with me Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Let's begin with Jonah and his message. Now, I told you that as we begin this chapter, we are back to square one. Now look at your Bibles and see how similar verse 1 of chapter 1 is, sim is similar with chapter 3 verse 1. In chapter 1 verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In our chapter, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, exactly the same, the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to you the proclamation which I am going to tell you. In chapter 1, Jonah is commissioned to go with this message. In chapter 3, Jonah is recommissioned to go to Nineveh. Again, we see here that this is an authoritative commission. As we saw in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came. God spoke directly to Jonah and gave him instruction. Jonah, you are my prophet. You are to speak to these people, and this is the message that you are to communicate to them. God, spoke direct, God speaks today in his word directly to us. And just as Jonah was commissioned then, perhaps with an audible voice of God, in the same way you and I have commissioned in the word of God. Now again, Jonah was given the same instruction, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Notice again, the first two commands are identical, arise and go. Now we don't know where the fish vomited Jonah up. Maybe he was close to the city, maybe he was far away, maybe he had to get on another boat. We don't know where he was because the text is silent about that. And here was Jonah's second chance to obey God. I mean, isn't it amazing? 
that the Lord would do it again and says, okay, you messed up the first time. Here's another chance. Jonah, arise and go. Will you obey me this time or are you going to flee? Now, because we know how the story ended, we know that Jonah is still not very excited about the message that he has to preach to the Ninevites because we read chapter 4. But Jonah goes and does what the Lord tells him. You see, the Lord will call you to do things that you perhaps are not excited about. He'll call you to go to places where you don't necessarily want to go. But as one who is commissioned by the Lord, you don't determine your assignment. The Lord sends you, and the Lord tells you where to go, and the Lord tells you what to say. And that's what it does in this passage. The third command, notice in this instruction, is getting more specific than one in chapter 1. Because he says here in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. In chapter 1, it was broader than that because he says, You go there and you cry out against their wickedness. Now God says, listen, when you get there, I'm going to give you a specific message that you are to pass on to those people. This is pretty cool because John didn't have to make up his message. John didn't have to figure out, okay, what am I going to say to them? I mean, how am I going to start my sermon? How am I going to finish my sermon? No, you're going to go there. Your job is to go there. And when you get there, I'm going to give you the proclamation. I'm going to give you the words which you are to tell them. Jonah, it is not your job to make up a message. It is not your job to convince the people there. Your job is simple. Jonah, you are to proclaim. You are to proclaim the, pres- the proclamation which I am going to tell you. You see, you and I have the same commission. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go with the message of the gospel to the ends of the world, listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses, where? Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now think about, what do witnesses do? Do they make up stories? I mean, if you're a witness on the stand, what do you do? You testify to what you have seen and heard. You simply relate the message that you have seen and heard. You are a witness. And he says here, when I'm going to commission you to go, I'm sending you out with a specific message. Proclaim what you have seen and what you have heard. That's why every Christian has something to say. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible school to be able to preach or teach the truth. Have you experienced the grace of God? Have you heard the gospel? Have you understood the gospel? Did you get saved? If you got saved, you know enough gospel to share with someone else so that they will be saved, right? And he says, you are my witnesses. You are simply to testify to me. Jonah, you're going to go there and I'm going to give you a message which you are to tell to those people. Now, this time, Jonah does exactly what he's told. Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's awesome. He doesn't flee anymore. He doesn't run, but he obeys the word of the Lord. How much trouble he could have saved himself and others if he just did that? I mean, you would have at least two chapters less in the book of Jonah if he did that, right? But Jonah goes... Now notice it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. 
If you were literally to translate that, it says Nineveh was a great city to God. It could mean that Nineveh belonged to God. Because you remember back in the day, you know, they had this idea that there are these different gods over different regions and different territories. And, you know, Ninevites worship this god, so that's their land. And then there's the god of the valley. He says, no, no, Nineveh was a great city to God. Or perhaps the Jews associated greatness with God. And so anything that was great, they would compare to that. And it says Nineveh was a great city. It was a great city before God. You see, God was concerned about the city. Specifically, we're told here that the city was a three days walk. Now, depending on who you read, they interpret this differently. It could literally mean that the circumference of the city was about 60 miles, and it would take you about three days to walk around the city. Or it could mean a three days walk that if you were a foreigner, and if you were to travel to that city, it would take you at least three days to get acquainted with the city and visit all the prominent places in that city. If it was literally 60 miles, and Jonah goes into the city, and he says he began to walk one day's walk. Verse 4, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, he probably doesn't mean that Jonah was just like walking across and just, you know, proclaiming his message is going. No, Jonah's probably going to the prominent places in that city where people are. Because, you know, we hear here that you have the nobles, you got the king involved. So he goes to the town squares, he goes to the main highways, and Jonah begins to proclaim and he begins to announce this message. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, this is not a feel-good, hunky-dory message, is it? Somebody shows up to your city and says, hey, listen, mark this date on your calendar. Forty days and your city will be wiped out. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown and were not found anymore, in the same way, you guys got 40 days. Now, we're not told here whether this is a summary of the message that Jonah preached or this was everything that Jonah said. Now, based on the response, we can probably assume that this is a summary of the message that he preached to them. But as it stands, notice there is no good news in this message. There is no good news. There is no call for repentance. It's just a statement of fact. You got 40 days, and you'll be wiped out. There is no hope of change. There is just a said day, and the judgment will come. Now, while there is no explicit hope in this message, there is implicit hope here. Why? Because God could have judged them. But notice, first of all, God sends a prophet to them to to warn them that judgment is coming. In that, we already see that God is merciful to them because someone comes and someone warns them. Not only that, but notice there's this grace period. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't say tomorrow, right now. No, you got 40 days. 40 days and then God will judge you. Again, God did not have to wait but he does. Now, this is a dangerous message to preach, especially in Nineveh. I mean, remember, these people are enemies. You remember that they were cruel, they were violent, and this is not the message that you want to go into their city and say, hey, 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Like we said, yeah, you want to go right now to Gaza, right? And walk in the streets and tell people, guys, tomorrow you all will be overthrown. Well, they'll cut your head off, Right? These are enemies of Israel that were known for their violence. And at the same time, 
the people of Israel did not really appreciate Jonah going to them either. You remember these are enemies. You remember that, I mean, theoretically speaking, if Jonah was not to go to them, if Jonah was not to preach to them, if no one would preach to them, they would not repent. And 40 days later, God would have wiped them out. And people in Jerusalem would read their Jerusalem Times and like, man, that's awesome. One less enemy to deal with. I mean, when Jonah showed back home, I mean, he did not have a great homecoming. He did what? They re- what? There are enemies, right? So it's a dangerous message to preach to them because those people hate you. And your own people, they're just like Jonah. They don't want to show mercy to Ninevites. But Jonah goes, and Jonah proclaims, and Jonah speaks. Now, what can we learn from Jonah's message? First of all, you learn that everyone is accountable to God. Everyone is accountable to God. And everyone knows that they are accountable to God. Notice that Jonah did not have to convince these pagans that there is God named Yahweh and that he is going to judge them. Again, we see here the sovereignty of God over all the nations. If you're living in a pagan land like that, you're worshiping your own God and you're thinking like, okay, my God's here, your God's over there, you do your thing, I do my thing. And here comes this guy 1,500 miles away, shows up, or he comes and says, guys, listen, my God is about to judge you. What? Why is that? Because my God is sovereign over you. Because my God is the God of all lands. Because your city belongs to my God, not your so-called made-up God. Everyone is accountable to God, even if you do not recognize that. That's what we learn here. There are people who live in this world. They perhaps never heard of Yahweh. They never heard of Jesus. They never heard, but guess what? They are accountable to him. And if you were to come and preach the same message to them, they better heed that message. All men know that there is God. Not everybody knows God, but all people know that there is God. You have to go to college or some other institution to learn that there is no God. Children come into this world knowing that there is God. And you have to convince yourself somehow. Why? Because you want to get rid of accountability. Because if there is no God, I can do whatever I want. But guess what? If there is God, then I'm going to die one day. And I'm going to stand before Him. And I'm going to be accountable. And Scripture says that there are no atheists. Bible does not believe in atheists. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What do you have to do to suppress the truth? You have to know the truth. He says, pagans suppress the truth because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He says, general revelation is sufficient for you to know that there is God and that you are accountable to him. General revelation is not sufficient for salvation, but it is sufficient for condemnation. People know that there is God, and all men are without excuse. Second thing we learn from the message that Jonah preached is that good news begins with a bad news. He began with bad news. We touched on this earlier, but I think we need to get this down. You see, you will not plead for mercy unless you understand that you deserve judgment. In today's society, many people have convinced themselves that they're not really that bad. 
I mean, yes, they're humans, but I mean, we're not actually that bad. In fact, many have convinced themselves that it's not their fault that they are like that. They're just victims. They're victims of racism, patriarchy, whiteness, or some other social ill. People have done all these things to me, so whatever I am, it is not my fault. That's not the way the Bible looks at it. You see, men do not understand the sinfulness of sin. And the reason we do not understand the sinfulness of sin is because we do not understand the holiness of God. You see, when you compare yourself with other people, you think you're pretty good. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people on death row. They're a lot worse than me. So I'm pretty good. But if I compare myself with the holiness of God and with the righteous standard of God, then pretty good will not fly. God requires perfection. And if you, would unto, if you were to understand the holiness of God, then you would understand the gravity of your own sin. You see, ultimately, it's not about how you perceive yourself or even how others perceive you, but it's how God views you. Because on the last day, you're going to stand before God, and it's going to be you and God. It's not going to be your neighbor and the guy that you read in the news on the death row. No, it's going to be you, and it's going to be God. You see, God defines what is right and what is wrong. In this case, this city that has never heard of God, God says, their wickedness has come up before me. Because God defines what is right, and God defines what is wrong, and God determines the judgment for the wrong. See, he would not wrong anyone in Nineveh if he would just wipe them out. Because they are sinners. Because they violated his law. We read in the book of Nahum all the things that they did. They sinned against God. They were sinners by nature, and they were sinners by practice. And guess what? That includes all of us here. We are just like the Ninevites. All of us, if God were to kill every single one of us before giving us the good news, he would not wrong any one of us. Because salvation is not a matter of justice. Salvation is a matter of mercy. If we want justice, then you want everybody to go to hell. And if God were to be just, he would just simply send everyone to hell. But notice he does not. He gives mercy by sending prophets like these who preach this message. And you see, unless you recognize that you are one who deserves wrath, you deserve judgment, you will never cry out for mercy. Notice Jonah did not come to the city and says, listen, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He didn't say that. No, you had 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. What was their response? Let's look at the Ninevites and their mourning. Verses 5 through 9. I want to summarize their response with four words that you see in the text. Number one, they believed. They believed. Verse 5 says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And this is a remarkable statement. People of Nineveh believed in God. They only heard a message of judgment. They only heard a proclamation, unless it is a summary of what Jonah said to them, a five-word summary, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You see, though Ninevites worship their own gods, Yet here it says, Ninevites believed in the God Jonah proclaimed to them. Perhaps Jonah had to explain to them what he explained to sailors when he was on that ship. 
He probably had a conversation with those people and probably shared more with them than just the summary statement here. You remember what he said to the sailors? He said, I am a Hebrew and I feared the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He probably had a conversation with those people and he says, yes, I am a representative of Yahweh, of the God who created this universe, he created the sea and he created the dry land. And you're accountable to him and he's about to wipe you out. Why did they believe the message of Jonah? New Testament helps us with that. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, you can only repent, and you can only believe, if God opens your eyes and gives you grace to believe. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, they heard the message. They heard the message from God. Philippians 1.29 says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. Faith is something that God gives. So when the passage says here, they believed in God, it means that God graciously opened their hearts to respond to the things which were spoken by Jonah. God was gracious to them. Listen, don't think that you can just believe whenever you want, because you can't. Because if you continue to rebel against the message that you hear, and you continue to spit upon that message, there might come a time when you will want to believe, but you won't believe. Repentance comes from God. It is the gift that God gives. Yes, you repent. God doesn't repent for you. But it's something that God gives. Faith comes from God. Furthermore, God used Jonah to deliver this message to Ninevites. In Luke 11, Jesus makes this interesting statement about Jonah. In 11.30, he says, For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Here's a question. In what way was Jonah a sign to the Ninevites? I mean, Jesus says here, Just as Jonah became a sign to Ninevites. I mean, Jonah probably had to explain to people what happened to him and how he got there. He probably had to relate to them what happened in chapters 1 and chapter 2. What do you think Jonah looked like when he spent three days in the stomach of the fish? If that fish was trying to digest you for three days, what do you think you looked like? I mean, they probably looked at Jonah and was like, hey, dude, what happened to you? I mean, you can probably assume that he was not a walking billboard for, you know, makeup company, L'Oreal and Revlon. No, that's not what he was. They looked at, what happened to you? And Jonah says, yeah, yeah, I serve God. I didn't want to come to you. Look at me. This God sent me. And told him a story probably about the fish and about everything else. He says, the sign of Jonah. And imagine if you had a preacher here who says, listen, the Lord sent me to Folsom Bible Church to tell you this message. I didn't want to go, but then you know what? I went away and I got swallowed by a fish and here I am. Look at me. You'd be like, huh? These people heard Jonah, and Jonah became a sign to them, and they knew that Jonah wasn't joking around. And the message that he was preaching wasn't a joke. You see, God used even Jonah's disobedience to communicate the message that he was preaching. Not only did they believe, number two, it says they mourned. They mourned. It says they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Fasting and putting on sackcloth was a sign of mourning. You know, 
sackcloth was this fabric which was made of goat or camel hair. It was very coarse. It wasn't uncomfortable. It was a sign of one's contrition. It was a sign of inward contrition before God when somebody would put that on to outwardly demonstrate that they are mourning. We don't do that today. But that's how they demonstrated mourning back then. And this was not just few individuals in the city because verse 5 says, from the greatest to the least of them. Verse 6 tells us that the king himself took the lead in this morning. Because verse 6 says, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. King of Nineveh is not, doesn't mean that he was just king of that city, but he was king of Assyria, including Nineveh. And when this message comes to him, we see his contrition. And he demonstrates that by removing his royal robe and trading it for sackcloth and ashes. Not only that, verse 7 says he issued a proclamation that everyone must do the same. Everyone, man and beast, in Nineveh, he says, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Notice, it's not just the king, it's not just the president, but it's the cabinet, it's the office. Everybody got together and everyone issues this proclamation and they say this, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. It's not that they were just against eating. No, again, fasting was a demonstration of contrition. It was a demonstration of mourning. King and the ruling man of the city, they issued this fast, and they said everyone must do it, including animals. Now, we don't know how long the fast lasted, because you can only go so long without drinking any water. But this was indicative of their mourning. Notice they did not take the message that Jonah preached to them lightly. They responded with mourning. So they believed, they mourned, and number three, they prayed. They prayed. This was part of King's decree. He says, and let man call on God earnestly. He is commanding them to pray to Yahweh. You see, you cannot get right with God unless you talk to God. So he commands them, you must pray. Now, this is not a mourning for mourning's sake. They're approaching God in humility and brokenness. Notice he says here, they must cry earnestly to God. Pray earnestly with your heart. Why? Because your life is literally at stake. you got 40 days to live. It's not a casual conversation. Their lives were at stake. And they pleaded with the Lord for their lives. And then finally it says they turned. Verse 8 says, And let man call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Notice again, these were not just mere words, but they were accompanied by actions. See, these are elements of genuine repentance. You believe the message of the Lord. You believe the Lord. You take Him at His word. Whatever He says, you believe and you trust in that. You acknowledge that you have sinned against the Lord and you cry out for mercy. And not only you cry out for mercy, but you don't hold on to your sin, you abandon your sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Notice the people of Nineveh, they recognized that God was speaking to them. They believed the message that they heard. 
They prayed to the Lord confessing their sin, and they demonstrated the genuineness of their confession by turning away from their wicked ways. Notice the king notes here that you must turn from your wicked ways. A wicked way is description of their way of life. That's how you live. You are wicked. And the specific sin that he denounces here, and from the violence which is in their hands, that's what they were known for. That was their specific sin that they are confessing before the Lord. Perhaps Jonah confronted them on those sins. Perhaps he said to them, listen, you've done this and you've done that. And that's why God is angry with you. And that's why God is going to wipe you out. And so King knows that he's going to go to the Lord and he's going to confess the specific sin before the Lord. Lord, forgive us because we are wicked. And forgive us because we have done this. We were violent. And King concludes his decree with this glimmer of hope. Verse 9 says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now we can infer from this that Jonah did not include a message of mercy in his message. He did not tell him, guys, if you repent, God will show compassion to you. There was no promise of that. The king has to say, listen, who knows? Who knows? God may turn. King contemplates possibility. I mean, for whatever reason, God sent a prophet to us to warn us. For some reason, he gave us 40 days. So who knows? Who knows? Perhaps this God is merciful. Perhaps this God is gracious. In a sense, he says, who knows? God may turn. I mean, we know that he might not. But perhaps he will. Perhaps he will show mercy. We can't compel mercy. We can only ask for mercy. Notice he does not say, God, look at us. Look how broken we are. Look how humble you are. Now you can't wipe us out because he doesn't say that. No, he just simply demonstrates his contrition before the Lord. And he says, perhaps the Lord will be merciful. You see, you can't earn mercy. Mercy is given freely. God may respond by showing mercy or he may not. And the king acknowledges that. King knows that that God is sovereign. You remember the message of chapter 2? Salvation is of the Lord. It's not a transaction that if you jump through this hoop and if you do this and that and the other, then God says, oh, I'm going to do. No, it is of the Lord. And that's why he says the only thing you can come, you can be like that tax collector who stood in that temple and he says, Lord, be merciful to me. We just sang a song that there is nothing that I can do with my hands There is nothing that I can bring to you that will somehow make me acceptable. No, the only thing I can do is I can come and ask for mercy. I mean, what a picture of genuine repentance and mourning. You see, they acknowledge their sin and their wickedness. They acknowledge that God has every right to be angry with them and judge them. They acknowledge their need for mercy. And they demonstrated their contrition by praying by confessing their sin, and by turning from their wicked ways. Let's look finally at God and His mercy. Verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. You see, Ninevites respond to God 
with genuine mourning. And now God responds to Ninevites with his incredible mercy. Now we've been saying from the beginning that this book is putting on display the mercy and the compassion of God. There was God's mercy for Jonah in chapter 2. And in this chapter we see God's mercy for the Ninevites. You see, they did not earn God's mercy. They pleaded for his mercy. And Jonah highlights their genuine repentance by saying that God saw that they turn from their wicked ways. Again, it was not just, you know, oh, I feel bad today because I got caught, so I have to go to, and I have to say a few words here, and God will forgive me, and tomorrow I'm going back to doing the same thing. No. They genuinely felt sorrow for their sin, and they turned from their sin, and God saw that they did. Now we see here all along that God is ready to forgive. That's why this book is here. Yes, the message of judgment is true, but specifically when we come to this chapter, when we come to this passage, where is this here? It is here to tell us that God is ready to forgive. And notice that God does everything in order to arrange this. God acts behind the scenes in sending the prophet, and Jonah preaches the message to them, and when he preaches the message to them, God works in their hearts. God opens their hearts. God gives them ability to see their sin. God gives them repentance, and they repent, and when they repent, God lavishes mercy on them. You see, it is all about God. God shows mercy. He relented concerning the calamity. Next time we'll touch a little bit on the fact that God changes his mind and when he does that. But notice specifically here is that they changed their attitude toward God. And therefore, God changed his attitude toward them. See, they hated God and they were his enemies. But now in contrition, they came before God and God says, I'll show mercy. I'll show mercy. That's why I say that the point of this chapter is that God has mercy on those who respond with mourning to his message. The God that we worship here today is the same God of whom we read in this chapter and in this book. You see, he sends people with the same gospel message. And if you're here today and if you have not believed this message, I want you to hear this message again. Perhaps this is another opportunity when the Lord is inviting you to come and he's saying to you, listen, believe and do what Ninevites did. If you're a believer, I want you to rehearse this message so that you would be ready to, first of all, rejoice in that message yourself, but then be able to share that message with anyone whom the Lord puts in your path. What is the message of salvation? How would you summarize it simply in a few minutes? Begin with the fact that God is the sovereign Lord of this universe. God is the sovereign creator. He created this world, and this world belongs to him whether you know it or not. He created this world, and because he's a God of this world, he determines how this world runs. He determines how you are to act because he's your God and because he made you. The perfect world that he created did not last for long. We know that Adam and Eve sinned against God, disobeyed his command, and as a result, they plunged the entire humanity into sin. Every person in this world is a sinner by nature and by practice. Because you're born from Adam, you inherit his sinful nature. And because you've lived for more than a second, you are a sinner by practice. All of us are just like Ninevites. Now because God is holy, he must 
punish sin. If he lets sinners get away with their sin, he ceases to be holy. That's why God does not tolerate sin. And there's nothing that you can do to appease his wrath. There's nothing, as we just sang, you can bring in your hands so that you would somehow satisfy him. But what is the good news? That's the bad news. The bad news is that you're damned because you are a sinner and you've sinned against God and you can do nothing. But here's the good news. That while you were in that state, God still loved you. God loved you so much that he took his only son, Jesus Christ, and he comes to this earth and he becomes like one of us. He becomes a man and he lives a perfect life. He lives a perfect life without committing one sin. And when he goes to the cross, when he hangs on the cross, God takes your sin and God takes my sin and he puts him on Christ and God the Father pours his wrath on his son for the things that you and I did and he didn't do. And Jesus Christ dies on the cross, paying the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. That because Jesus was God and man at the same time, he's able to absorb that wrath within hours on the cross. And when he dies, he said, it is finished. It is finished. The mission of redeeming sinners was completed when he died on the cross. And to prove that that was the case, three days later, he walked out of the tomb. He walked out of that tomb, demonstrated to everybody that the Father was satisfied with the payment that he offered on the cross. The Father now will receive anyone who places his faith in the work of Jesus Christ. There is only one thing that the Father accepts, and that is the payment that the Son has offered on that cross. If you bring anything other than that, you are rejected because you are spitting in the face of Christ. There is only one thing that he accepts, and that is the obedience of his son. And you remember that Jesus Christ gave this promise. He says in John chapter 6, verse 37, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That wasn't included in Jonah's message. He didn't say to Nineveh, guys, if you repent, God will show mercy. Now Jonah knew that God would show mercy, and maybe he said it, it's just not recorded. But guess what? We have New Testament. And New Testament tells us that, listen, if you believe this message, if you acknowledge that you are a sinner, if you repent just like Ninevites did, if you acknowledge that you have sinned against God, if you acknowledge that you are worthy of his judgment, and that if he judges you, he would be absolutely just and righteous. And just like Ninevites, you repent, you pray to the Lord, you mourn for your sin, and you plead for mercy, saying, perhaps God would show mercy. He says, if you do that, you will not be cast out. Now, if you're a Christian, that is the message that you believed. Because if you didn't believe this message, you're not a Christian. Christians are those who trust Christ for his work on the cross. If you didn't trust this message, you are not a Christian. And I don't care how long you've been going to church or how many books of the Bible you memorize. It does not matter. You trust Christ, you are a Christian. You believe this message, you acknowledge the bad news, you accept the good news, and you are saved. And guess what? If you have done that, you can rejoice today because your eternity is secured. Because you can sing the songs that we sang, My God has been merciful to me in Christ. And you can say like Jonah said, My God. If you're not a Christian, then this message still goes out to you today. I mean, God could have ended your life last night or on the way to church. Could have done that. Just like for Nineveh, it said 40 days. But he didn't. 
so that you can hear this message again. And he's calling you, repent and believe and trust. And notice these Ninevites, they didn't take fundamentals of the faith, didn't attend the systematic theology class. They're like, well, what do we do now? No, they simply cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard, and the Lord showed mercy. That is the message that we celebrate and that we preach right here. That's what we go through this book, so that we would once again remind ourselves of that message, and we would have a desire to go with this message to others so that they may hear and that they may believe. That's what this chapter teaches us. God has mercy on those who respond with mourning to his message. That is the message that you need to believe. And that is the message that we need to preach. So may God use us to that end so that from this place we would go and we would share this message with others. And if you would so please, he would save them and bring them so that they would worship and sing with us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we have experienced this mercy. We thank you that we can call you our God. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray the same for others who have not yet trusted, who are still holding on to their old way of life, to the things that they heard or they taught, were taught before. I pray, Father, that you would convert them today, bring them to you, so that even tonight they can go home knowing that their eternity is secure. Give us opportunities, Lord, to speak this to others so that they may hear, may mourn, and may believe, and you may save them. Use us, we ask, for your glory. Amen.